Thank you. Good morning. If you've got your um, Bibles handy uh, here online, I'd ask you to uh, open to the book of Luke. And today's Bible reading is from the book of Luke. It's uh, chapter 15, the whole chapter. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbours together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who do not need to repent. Well, suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbours together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons, The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went out to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, 
because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is God's word. Praise be to God. Hey, friends, I think I'm on. I'm not on yet. No, that's me, is it, Aaron? Fantastic. Am I on now? Yes. Everyone online is like, this guy's a great mime artist. That's fantastic. Hey, that was uh, Rick Van Drimmelen. Rick used to be our chair of elders. He served faithfully across the life of our church. And Rick, I'm so glad you read that instead of me. Some people are like, surely not the whole of chapter 15. But it is such a beautiful chapter. And I can't wait to unpack it with you today. Hey, two things. As I said earlier, my name is Michael, if you've only just joined us. Um, I'm excited for Vision Sundays. We spend the next four Sundays working out. Hey, God, not working out. Hearing from scriptures about where God is leading us that we might strengthen our mission together this year. Yeah, we're just going to work it out on platform together. What do we think God is doing? That's funny for pastors, clearly not everyone else in the room. The other thing I tell you is that I actually ordered a coffee for myself on the app before they said people who have been here before can't order the coffees on the app, and it works amazingly. So uh, I'm expecting, number one, my coffee to be outside, but if you're new, definitely scan that QR code on the back of your seat. Because the second thing that I want to let you know today is next, tomorrow, we start seven days of prayer and fasting. And in the life of our church, as we gather to hear what God is doing across and into 2022, what's big on our heart is this, is that we want to make sure we created this space to hear from the voice of God together. Now, you might be here going, well, what's fasting? Pretty simply, fasting is a moment where we take a step back from something of the world that we might take a step into dependence on God. Some people might take a step back from technology. Some people might take a step back from a form of food. I know Pastor Alex from Brisbane is only eating vegetables um, this week, which, you know, good luck to him. I hope he does well. But, but it's this sense of we want to actually intentionally remind ourselves how weak we are without the presence of God. And every day we'll be praying at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. on Zoom if you want to join us. Turn to the person next to you and say, that sounds like fun. (laughs) They didn't believe you. They didn't believe you when you said that. Hey, would you join me as we just pray real quick? Gracious God, without you, I can do nothing this morning. Nothing of eternal value or worth, for only you transform our hearts. Only you Only you can save, redeem, and return us. So God, I pray that they would not hear the voice of a weak pastor on a platform, but they would hear the whispers of the mighty voice of the Holy Spirit. That we all, as we come before your word, would sense you challenge and shape and mold us that we might become more like Jesus. God, as always, less of me, more of you, I pray. Amen. Amen. Friends, it was a good week for me this week. I turned 33. Come on. I was not expecting that. I was expecting like a singular clap from my mum. So I'm really excited that you all joined in. And I had a really great birthday. I can't tell you why. I just enjoyed the day. I never really liked birthdays. You used to not tell anyone that it was my birthday. My wife, Sarah, has taught me the importance of celebration. And then two weeks ago, a great pastor hopped up on platform and said, hey, we need to be a church that celebrates. So I came out. It was Pastor Andrew, in case you're wondering. I came out on Thursday and I was like telling everyone, it's my birthday today. And I was just like awkward. And I looked at them being like, what do you want to say? And they're like, happy birthday. I'm like, yes, you remembered. But interestingly enough, something awkward happened every single time. I'd say it's my birthday. They're like, happy birthday. You know, the high five. And then they would ask me the question that I didn't think you were actually allowed to ask someone. They're like, so how old are you? And I'm like, oh, great. I'm 33. No word of a lie. The majority of people would turn around. The next thing they would say, I'd say, I'm 33. And they'd look at me like this and be like, oh, 
Jesus died when he was 33. <laughs> now, I'm not talking about one person. I'm talking about like five or six people. I'm like, what possesses you that when I say my age, you're like, Jesus died when he was 33. Someone just said, well, he did. And I'm like, yes, he did. But how seriously are we taking more people more like Jesus? Like, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I don't think I'm gonna vanquish Satan and return from the dead and establish myself as the savior of the universe all in a year. But Jesus did that so if we could just lower the expectations on what I can do in my 33rd year, that would be amazing. But as I was meditating on the cruelness of people in my world, including Pastor Brad Foote, there's this moment where I realized, I realized, hey, it's a good question to ask. What does it actually mean for us to become more like Jesus? What does it actually mean for Michael to become more like Jesus this year? See, last year we spent a year asking this question. We, at New Life, we're not passionate about every year going, what am I gonna do this year? No, no, we ask a stronger question. The stronger question we believe is, who am I gonna become? And last year we, we declared as a church, as a gathered people, that we wanna become more like Jesus. But the question that, I, that provokes my heart is this, what does it mean? How do I become more like Jesus? I mean, basically, we could just say, well, his mission becomes our mission. His priorities become our priorities. His heart becomes our heart. But that still seems overwhelmingly impossible. Where does this come from? In Matthew chapter 28, Jesus stood before his disciples on a hill and he cast a vision about what the next thing was for them. He said, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What's he saying here? Hey, at this moment... The universe has recognized and seen my established authority and power, and the next thing I say will be filled with that power. And he says, therefore go, you, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus says this the best. He paints this picture of the kingdom of God, which says, do you want to know how this thing's going to roll out? It's not going to be because I visit every church or because I rock up physically in every location. I'm sending my disciples into the world. That's where we get our vision from, our mission from as a church. That if you ask anyone that's passionate about what God is doing, they'll say, you ask them why we do what we do. It's because new life exists to see more people more like Jesus. This is just Matthew 28, 18 to 20, really kind of broken down into five memorable words. This is a statement of discipleship. Now, for those of you who don't know what a disciple is, a disciple is, is not necessarily a Christian. A disciple is anyone that's learning to become like somebody else. We're all disciples of something. We're all disciples of someone. And those who call New Life Home have chosen to be disciples of Jesus. But I want to pause because I recognize there's a bunch of different people in the room. There's a bunch of people joining us online. There's the mother who hears that I'm going to talk today about how do we become more like Jesus. And you have a little margin in your world. And you're thinking the last thing I need is another how-to list. There's the business person in this room who is sitting around board tables or in meetings looking at budgets and strategic plans. And when I say the most important thing you can work out with your year is how are you gonna become more like Jesus, something in you goes, really? Isn't that your job? 
There's someone else in this room who's at university. You're surrounded by secular liberalism and you're wondering, what does it mean for me to find my identity and my purpose? And in the midst of that, trying to learn how to follow Jesus. There's a father at the end of his rope because he's woken up three times last night and he's tired, or is it just me, amen? And there's this, there's this moment where you're like, I, I don't know, man. Like I, I just come to church so I can be encouraged, but, but I don't know if I could have another thing to do. And there's someone in the room who you don't know who Jesus is really. You're exploring faith, you're exploring church, maybe you were invited today or you, you, know, you saw something, you're just, you're, you're checking this out and you're not even sure if Jesus is worth becoming like. And to all of those people and all those who I haven't mentioned today, I would say you're so welcome here and the grace of God is for you and what God wants to seek to do in and through you has less to do with you adding more to your life and rather for Jesus to fill your life and make it become more focused and more of what he has called it to be. Because I don't think that becoming more like Jesus is optional for a disciple of Christ. It's an imperative. And here at New Life, we believe it is central and so for the next four weeks, what we're going to look at is the vision for this year, but not just for this year, it's for the years to come. Usually Vision Sunday, we're like, and we're church planting in Ipswich. And everyone's like, I'm not going. And then we're like, okay, we're finding somewhere else, unless you're from Ipswich, in which case we're praying for you. There's this sense, someone, they, there's probably a bunch of people here today from there, like, that wasn't funny. There's this sense where we always talk about what we're going to do. And here at New Life, Vision Sunday, I don't want it to just be what we're going to do this year, but about what we're going to do from now for, for here on in. And what we want to talk about across Vision Month is when we read Matthew 28, when we read the Word of God, when we read the disciples, what are the priorities of someone who follows Jesus? And we're going to talk today and across this month about four priorities, about what we believe it means, the how to become more like Jesus. We're going to talk about what it means to gather the lost Next week, we're going to talk about what it means to glue in community. The week after, what it means to grow as a disciple. And finally, we'll talk about what it means to go on mission. And friends, you may have heard those four things. You're like, wow, there are four Gs. That's easy to remember. Yes, it's half the reason why they're four Gs. But they're also these things that we are passionate about as a church. And when we read Luke chapter 15, we see the priority of God. We see the priority of God in three stories. We're welcomed into the story in this moment where in Luke chapter 15, the writer of the gospel opens the story and actually in the moments before we find out that Jesus is at the house of someone called a Pharisee. A Pharisee, if you're, if you're not used to that language, is just someone who's the religious elite of his day. It's just the, the inner upper echelon of those who are really holy and considered really righteous and they've done nothing wrong. Jesus is sitting at their table. And Luke 15, the story introduces us and says this, now the tax collectors and sinners... We're all gathering around to hear Jesus. Here's Jesus invited to the table of the religiously pure, the upright, and the holy. They didn't rub shoulders with tax collectors. They despised them. They were not caught in the same room as people who were known to be sinners because they were separate from them. So what we see in the first verse is we see that there is a tension at this dinner party. And in verse 2, we hear how the Pharisees turn and they spit out a reputation for the Son of God. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners. And what's worse, he eats with them. He eats with them. There is something said of Jesus where who he hangs around becomes his reputation. I'm going to turn to this question later on today, but I want to, trigger something in you 
by asking this. What's your reputation? What's the reputation of this church? See, Jesus wasn't worried about their disgust. Jesus wasn't worried about his reputation because Jesus didn't come to protect his reputation. He came to redeem ours. Jesus didn't come to protect his reputation, the reputation of the Father. He came to change yours. And this is why in this moment, as the Pharisees turn and they spit this reputation about Jesus out, like, you eat with these people? He launches into one of the longest passages of Scripture centered on the same theme as he explains three things to the Pharisees and to us today. He explains the state of man, the heart of God, and the call of the disciple. And he talks about three stories of lost things. Do I have anyone in this room other than me who is really good at losing things? Some of you. I excel at losing things. If there was an X Factor or a Winter Olympics where there was a sport of losing things, I would get the gold medal every year. In fact, my wife was quite surprised by this innate ability in me to lose things when we got married. So she bought me one of those orbit things or like a Bluetooth tile to stick on everything I own and a clicker so I could find everything I own. But because I'm so good at this, I not only lost the tile, I've lost the clicker as well. <laughs> And so in my life, people know, don't, whenever I go to buy something, Sarah's like, are you willing to lose that? And I'm like, that's pretty hard, but fair. We could probably save the money. And so we do. When I planted a church in Brisbane, there was this um, moment where after every service, I would um, turn to the team and I'd go, hey, has anyone seen my wallet? Or has anyone seen, like, insert something that belongs to me there? My keys, my car, or even at times my kid. And then people would be like, oh, at first they're like, Pastor Michael's lost his kids. Michael, Michael's lost his wallet. Michael's lost his keys. And everyone would just be like, stop everything and let's go search. The second week was like, hey, I lost my wallet, guys. And like, oh, okay, we should, we should talk about that. But let's all go search and let's all get on, on that. And then the third week, the fourth week, the fifth week. By the sixth week, when I was like, hey, guys, I lost my wallet, people were like, sucks, man. And they'd keep on going. And I'm like, what? And like, well, I mean, you'll find it. But dude, like, get yourself together. How are you entrusted to be a pastor when I can't even trust you with a key? And there's actually a funny story. I lost my son this morning in my own house. That's a story for another time. I got really scared. I'm like, I think someone's kidnapped my kid. They hadn't. He's around somewhere. And there's, um, and there's this moment where everyone around me has this lethargy, this apathy. That when I say I've lost something, they're like, of course you have. You always lose something. The reason why I say this is I wonder if there's a lethargy in the church. Not because God has lost things and he is anything like me, but because we can be overwhelmed by how many things are lost in this world. And so instead of actually being activated, we're like, well, if I, you know, if I go out there and I care about things that are lost or people that are lost this week, guess what? Next week, there's just more. And it's easier for me to actually think of other things because it becomes less depressing. But Jesus, in this moment, he seems to say, you want to know what the priority of God is? The priority of God is towards the lost. The priority of God is actually that we recognize that there is an epidemic of lostness in our world and the church is called into it. And this is why Jesus unpacks for us the state of man. Within three stories, he starts and paints three different pictures of lost things. He talks about the lost sheep. He talks about the lost coin. He talks about the lost son. And what Jesus is doing here, it's a Pharisees and religious leaders who have said, we are the blessed. And these guys, they're deplorable. He says, let me tell you about the state, not just of tax collectors and sinners, but the state of all humanity. The state of humanity is a sheep, it's a coin, it's a lost son or a daughter. 
And when you actually analyze and look at these stories through this lens, you realize that Jesus, in some ways, is being really insulting to the state of humanity. When Jesus, in the first story, talks about the idea of sheep, if I asked you, who are you in that story, the answer is, I'm the sheep. If you've ever encountered a sheep, you know how insulting that is. Sheep are really dumb. I've chased sheep before. There is no sense of guile or purpose or understanding in their life. That's why sheep have shepherds. And Jesus boldly makes this statement. Hey, humanity is wayward. That without a shepherd, humanity wanders. Without a shepherd, humanity left to their own devices finds themselves in the middle of a place they can never return from. He casts a vision where we realize that actually this isn't just Jesus coming up with this, but we remember back in Isaiah chapter 53 where the prophet writes, we all like sheep have gone astray. Ba, ba, do, ba, ba. Each of us, it's actually in there. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of his soul. The prophet Isaiah says, we all like sheep. Some of you are like, you're a sheep, I'm not a sheep. We're all sheep. But Jesus says, some of the sheep have been corralled. 99 But whilst there is one, whilst there is one that is outside the pen, whilst there is one in danger, whilst there is one that does not know my protection, whilst there is one that does not know me, then there is still a mission. And I'll leave the 99 in their comfort and I will pursue the one. Friends, the beauty of what Jesus paints for us here is what he's saying to the Pharisees is this. You all have gone astray. You all are like sheep. And you all are like a coin. Why is it important that he references humanity as coins? Because coins can't find themselves. I know. Because if coins could find themselves, I would be rich with the amount of coins I've lost over the years. You never lose a coin and then go, coin, where are you? And it shouts, here I am, master, come find me. Why? Because a coin is an inanimate object. There's something powerful about Jesus saying here. The coin is helpless in its own estate. If the woman with the lamp does not go and seek the coin, the coin is left by itself. What Jesus says here is a really powerful understanding of salvation. Friends, we do not find God. God finds us. Let me say this again. We do not find God. God finds us. And there are some of you here today, you come to church so you might find God. You are not here today because God's playing an eternal game of Marco Polo with you and trying to see if you can win. He has drawn you here, even though you may have felt like you made the call, he's whispering and beckoning and calling you unto himself because God finds us. We do not find God. And the last one is that we are like a son. Why is this powerful? Not that we're wayward sheep, not just that we're inanimate coins, but here we have an intelligent human being, a son or a daughter, who is given everything they could possibly need, all the wealth, all the protection, everything from the Father, and still they go, I will take all your goodness and use it for my own selfish needs. Friends, this is not such an accurate depiction of humanity, of us. Do we not look at the beauty of creation and work out how can it serve my selfish ends and my selfish needs? In three stories, Jesus paints the powerful picture of the reality and state of humanity. And he's saying to the Pharisees this important line, I have not come for those who think they've got it all together. I've come for those who know that the only thing that they require to enter my kingdom is need. 
is a need to be found. And friends, I've come to tell you today, maybe you've been coming to church for a while, do you remember what it means to be lost? Do you remember what it means to not be found? Too many Christians have divorced from their, their sense of what God has done from their life and they're worried about what's God doing now for me when really has he not done enough? Has he not done enough? But then he longs to call us into this so much so that he paints for us in these stories the heart of God. That he paints this picture of a shepherd who has 99 great sheep and there's one stupid sheep out there somewhere I shouldn't say stupid because some of you are like, that's me. And you're like, he just called me down. There's this sheep out there that is loved and he could have been okay with the 99. He goes, no, whilst there is one, C.S. Lewis says it like this, God would have sent his son to die. Even if there was one man to die for, he still would have died. Because in the kingdom of God, every name, every name, every person, every individual is valuable and sought after and loved by the king. So he becomes a shepherd. And Jesus tells a story of a son of God who becomes a shepherd that we might know that he has come searching for us. But then in the second part of the story, we see a lamp. Somewhat times I think we can think that God is the woman, but many theologians actually think that God in this story is actually personified by the lamp and the people of God are the woman. That without the lamp, the room is dark. They can find nothing, but with the lamp of the Holy Spirit, they are guided to find and see and illuminate the darkness that they might see what he is calling them to. And the last thing is that God is the Father. A Father not like your Father. Not like whatever your earthly father was like, good or bad, but a father does not wait for you to come home and say, I told you so. Not a father waits for us to return and, in, and instill on us discipline and oppression, but a father who when they, he sees us coming from far off, he sees his son returning, the shepherd who has found him, the lamp that has illuminated the way, the father lifts his garments and he runs for his son and his daughter. We see the state of man, but we see the heart of God is no matter how far we've gone, God's heart is always for us. Why is this important? Why should this be what we were reflecting on? Because if we are a people who long to be more like Jesus, then you cannot be a follower of Christ and not care for the lost. You cannot be a follower of Jesus and long to be more like him. And as you grow more like him, your heart has to break increasingly for those who do not know him. See, the first discipleship priority of this church is simply this. We believe we are called to join in with the work of God in gathering the lost. That our reputation would be a friend of sinners. That those who, who don't fit anywhere else, they fit here at New Life. They fit here. Why? Because everyone fits in the kingdom of God. Amen? Amen. But I want to ask this question. What is the reputation of New Life? What is the reputation of our church? I want to hazard to guess that I actually think maybe sometimes we're a friend of Christians. Sometimes we can be known not for the amount of lost people who are here, but for the amount of disenfranchised Christians who need a new home. Can I say, that's actually a really beautiful thing. I was a Christian who needed a new home and found it here at New Life. There's nothing wrong with that. But here's the problem. It's just not the mission. It's just not the priority. 
The mission of this church is not to see if every other Christian in all the other churches might one day find themselves here. The mission of this church is we find people who no one is reaching, who no one has called, who no one has witnessed to, that they would know the gospel of Jesus Christ. Who are we praying for? Who was on our heart? Well, I had a, had a good conversation with my friend Sally the other day at work. She's not too happy with her pastor. And I said, well, she should come and check out our pastor. He's a 33-year-old guy. He may or may not die this year. We're not quite sure. But, you know, you should come check it out. I'm praying that my friend Sally, who's a Christian, going to a perfectly good church might come check it out. You're, Why? That's, I mean, it's fine. Sometimes people need a safe home. They need a place to heal and be redeemed. But we have got mission drift. If we see more Christians coming to find new life as home than we do the lost, those who do not know Jesus, because his mission is not the righteous. The mission is those who need a doctor because they are sick. Friends, what is the priority of this church? What is the priority of your heart? See, I believe that the last thing that Luke chapter 15 does to us is it gives us the call of the disciple. There is no one who is following Jesus who is not called to care about the lost. Well, Michael, I don't really have the gift of evangelism. That's not really what I do. That's kind of your job, Michael. And and, and to be honest, I think that's really dangerous thinking. Because the same Holy Spirit that lives in me lives in you. It's the same Holy Spirit that raised Christ from the dead and has the power to transform and save lives. And Jesus lived his life in darkness bringing light. Luke chapter 19, verse 10, the Son of Man came to seek and save the found. No, the lost. We see in Luke chapter 7, a woman anointing Jesus' feet with oil, and everyone's like, do you know who she is? And Jesus knows exactly who she is. And she's like, she loves me because she knows how much she is loved. She is forgiven today. Forgiveness has come to the house of Simon. In Mark chapter 2, we see a man called Levi, a tax collector, Leave everything to come and follow Jesus. Why? Because lost people are always drawn to their Savior, but often they are repulsed by Christians who want a club to belong to rather than a mission to be a part of. The truth is, God, the church doesn't have a mission. The mission of God has a church, as the great saying goes, and we want to be a part of it. So here at New Life, our priority for 2022, our priority from here on in, as has always been our priority, is that we would be on mission with Jesus. A young woman who went to be a flight attendant, she got asked a question in an interview, what would you do if a fire broke out on the plane? And she said, don't worry about me, I'd get out okay. I think sometimes this is how we all treat faith. What would you do if Jesus came back tomorrow? Don't worry about me, I'm in. What if it's not about being in, but how many people God is calling us to welcome in alongside his Holy Spirit that when we stand before his throne one day, we are surrounded by friends and family and co-workers, lost people who were found. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that that saved a wretch like us. This is why in 2 Corinthians, I'll get to that another week, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 4 to 4, 15, it says this, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced one died for all. So I want to talk to those of you who are followers of Christ right now. Are you compelled? And the reason why I think we don't care about the lost is because I think we've forgotten how bad it is what we have been saved from and we've forgotten how good it is what we have been saved to. Because at the end of the story of the lost things is the elder brother who when the young son comes home turns to the father and says, how dare you? How dare you celebrate him? 
I've been coming to church for the last 10 years and you've not once sung one of the songs I like. <laughs> Do you know how long it took me to get into the car park this morning? Like, I don't know, I'm just saying. The preacher preached for 50 minutes last week. That's actually fair, and I think that that's a really bad thing. We're trying not to do that anymore. But we're like, we bring these complaints. And the father goes, hey, 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 on. Your, your brother's come home. If you cared about my heart, if you were wanting to know what I care about, it's not what you should have been doing in the field. Why were you not out there finding your brother? Friends, I think we've wanted a church that makes us comfortable. And I was going to say, new life is not about making Christians comfortable. We're about seeing Christians become missional for the kingdom of God. When was the last time that your family gathered together and prayed for the lost? When was the last time that you all motivated and said, hey, you know what, we're inviting someone that doesn't know Jesus around our table. And let me say this, I as your lead minister have to repent. Because I was talking to my wife this week and my dinner table has been too filled with Christians and not enough with people who don't know Christ being loved. This is for me. This is for us. We are not meant to be a holy enclave of those who made it home, but a missional outpost of those who are called to seek and save the lost along with the Son of God, the Spirit of God, and God the Father. And so that's why, friends, we do Alpha. That's why, friends, we are passionate about this ministry where we see people come to know Jesus. And this year, we're doubling down like never before. If you watch the screen behind me. We remember the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, that he has come to seek and save the lost. And we want to join him in that mission. And for us at New Life, we prioritize gathering the lost to the great ministry of Alpha. Alpha provides an environment where people feel comfortable to come to a place, whether it's in person or online, to ask the big questions of life. You know, there's this story that Jesus shares in the Gospels that I really love. It's the story of a good shepherd who leaves the 99 sheep to go after the one lost sheep. And the story reveals the heart of God for those that don't know Him. He wants to run after them with a pursuing love. And as we commit to gathering the lost as a church, we want to provide for you an accessible way by which you can participate in God's good mission. And it's this, inviting people to Alpha. We don't want to be a church that simply sees people from other churches come and visit. We don't want to be a movement that shuffles people from church to church. We want to be a church that is going after people who don't yet know Jesus. We literally want to be a church that sees more people more like Jesus. I guess before Jesus, I thought I had it all together. I was very much in touch with and aware of like, the spiritual realm. I just didn't realize that in actuality, I was lost and there was something missing that I was chasing. I decided to start researching into it and kind of just all unfolded. So what Christine had researched was that the foundation of New Age spiritualism was actually rooted in Satanism, um, which was a big, big shock to us. We kept researching after that and that actually led my sister to Jesus Christ. I just slowly came to the conclusion that if Satan is real, then God 
and Jesus are real. And then we decided to pray to God for the truth and we just, it all unveiled. And that weekend, um, we just knew 100% full conviction that Jesus Christ died for our sins and that there was a God. And crying. <laughs> Um, yeah, we, it was the most amazing <laughs> experience I've ever had. I think I spent the first, we both did the first week just crying with gratitude and humbleness that he had pulled us out of the darkness that we thought that was light, that he had chosen to save us just the mere question of what the truth was. So my sister Cass joined Alpha. I loved it from, from the very first week. I actually looked forward to it every um, week, going and meeting the community of people, hearing everyone's testimonies and stories and um, the videos which always just spoke to me and what was going on in my life or what I needed to hear. It really helped me kind of in, I was in such a the beginning stages of my faith and just to have that community of um, such a non-judgmental space to really share and um, speak about my own story it was, yeah, it was, it was beautiful. So what is Alpha? Alpha is an eight-week journey of exploring the answers to life's biggest questions in a non-judgmental and fun environment. And our Alpha Leadership team have prayerfully and boldly come up with the vision of seeing 10,000 people come through Alpha by 2026. And at least 25% of those people coming to know Jesus. This is a dream that will require the involvement of our entire church. And it begins with prayer and a personal commitment to invitation. This is your chance to partner with the Holy Spirit and play a part in the mission of seeing more people more like Jesus. We are so excited to see what God does through Alpha across New Life Churches this year. Sorry, Aaron, that's me again. 10,000 people in five years. You know, the Alpha team didn't set a number because they're just, they like numbers. It's because they realize 10,000 people, in the words of Rick Warren, every number has a name, every name has a story, and every story matters to God. There's just this moment when I'm watching that video, I'm like, these women, they're following Satan. And Alpha didn't find them, Jesus did. Alpha just kind of helps cement what God is up to. Imagine if they hadn't been invited. I just want to ask who in your life needs to know Jesus? Maybe you're here today and you need to know Jesus. And you're going, is there, is there any way home? And the beauty of the Christian faith is not a list of what you need to do, but a Savior who just says, come who just says, come and see, come and know, come and be, come and know my forgiveness. I've made a way. I've made a way. Yeah, our church is so blessed by God that we have a budget of a couple million dollars. 
with a couple thousand people that come to this church and we've been pushing Alpha for the last six weeks and I just want to tell you something that breaks my heart that at the moment we launched Alpha last week and there's, there's 20 people. I don't say that to make us feel guilty because if we all had invited someone and we only saw 20 people, then we had been obedient. But I'm just not sure we are. I think we're more worried about whether there's going to be the ministry that I'm hoping for this year or the, the service that I'm liking. We're, we're, not, we're not actually thinking, God, what's the mission you're calling me to? So I think 10,000 is probably too small if we believe in God. If we take this seriously, but also believe that if it happens, it's an only God moment. So I'm just going to ask, you know what? Let me put this challenge out there. It's week two of Alpha this Tuesday night. It's not too late. Some of you have felt called to ask someone to come to Alpha. And can I just encourage you? Why don't you come with them? Jump online, jump on Zoom. Most people just keep their camera off and Calvin's just got to talk to like a wall of nothing. But eventually they turn their cameras on and those, these ladies find faith and hope in Jesus Christ. Who in your life are you praying for? So there are three things that we want to ask you to do. We, we want to ask you to pray. On Tuesday this week, we're spending the whole day praying for those who don't yet know Jesus. Would you join with us? Because I know revival's always been marked by three things. Movements of prayer, radical repentance, and broken hearts for the lost. Number two, would you invite? Maybe it's not to church. Maybe invite someone to your table, to your house. Alpha's just one mean. One means by which we can expose people to the glory of God. And finally, maybe you're like, man, that's really interesting. I actually would love to financially be a part of that. Alpha costs 150 per person. And we've committed to 10,000 10, people. That's a lot. But I believe that God can provide. But maybe He's calling you to be a part of that. You can head to church at a new slash giving to, to actually take part in that. But here's, here's my hope. Would you be passionate about gathering the lost with us? What's our reputation going to be, church? What are we going to be known for? Long after you and I go, gone, may we be known for the stories of people who came to know Jesus. Would you stand with us today? Maybe you just open your hands in front of you. Holy Spirit, just as we finish this service, we thank you. Maybe there's some of you here today that are saying, Michael, I, this guy named Jesus, man, would he hang out with someone like me? And the answer is absolutely yes. If he hangs out with Michael, he hangs out with anybody. What do I need to do, Michael? I'm reminded on Jesus' last moments as he is nailed to a cross, there is a thief next to him who has done nothing to earn Jesus' favor or love, but even at Jesus' most painful moment, his heart is for the lost. And one of the other thieves on the other side of Jesus is mocking Jesus in this moment. And this thief stands up and says, do you not know who this is? He stands up and calls out his friend, and Jesus turns to the thief and says, I tell you truly today, you'll be with me in paradise. What had he done? What had he deserved? How come he got this invitation? Simply because Jesus said, come. 
And Jesus today does the same for you. He whispers, come. Come no freedom. Come no repentance. Come no forgiveness. If that's you today, if you've got your hands outstretched, and we'd love to pray with you, but you can pray this prayer. A simple prayer that just goes like this. Dear Jesus, I hear you say, come. Forgive me of my sins. I choose to follow you. Take me home. In Jesus' name, amen. Father, I pray for everyone that wants to come and follow you today, that it would not just be a momentary decision, but a decision for all of time, that we would now reorient our lives in being a disciple, becoming more like Jesus. In your mighty name we pray.